Hey, we want to welcome you. I'm Pastor Nate Keeler. I'm the lead pastor uh, here at the church. So if I don't know you, uh, please come say hi sometime. Good to see some new faces uh, joining us here today and all your old faces too. I love your old faces too. Those are great uh, as well. So um, hey, right after the service, I'm not going to normally be out uh, greeting people because we have a Holy Land interest meeting. If you're interested in going on the tour in October, uh, come join me. It'll be about a half hour meeting uh, out through this store, this little side door. Make a left. It'll be in my office right after the service. Now, today is also uh, a special Sunday. It's a, it's a day in the church that we commemorate sanctity of human life. It's a Sunday we set a, aside to remind ourselves what the scriptures teach, which is that all human life is sacred. All human life is sacred. All human life is made in the image of God and therefore endowed with dignity and honor and glory. And it's also a day that we pray and we intercede. We, be, we intercede on behalf of lives that do not have a voice and that do not have a choice And so in reflecting on this day, the Lord brought to my heart um, Revelation chapter 21, this the beautiful image of a restored world. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to say a a prayer this morning. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and I will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Would you pray with me? Jaira, God, we Thank you that you provide for us as we just sang. And Lord, on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we look to your faithful, your tear-wiping hands for help. We ask you for the courage and compassion that we need to live as faithful advocates for human life today. We long for a day when death shall be no more, when death and all of its expressions shall be no more, especially On this day, that the death of the unborn children shall be a thing of the past. Jesus, give us gospel courage to rise and contend for the sacredness of all life, especially the lives of the unborn. Because you are making all things new with undaunted hope, we will fight the good fight of faith for children who are still being knit together in their mother's womb. We thank you for the strides that are being made and have been made in our own lifetime to turn the narrative, to turn the tide of abortion. May you give us wisdom and grace along with our courage to stand for life. Lord, we also cry out for gospel compassion. Lord Jesus, show us how to love and care for women and men whose stories are marked by abortion, whether it's through as victims or as agents. Lord, we believe it's only the gospel that can bring healing. Only your touch can transform a life and redeem a story. Only you can transform us into agents of hope and mercy. And so, Lord, extend your tear-wiping hands through us 
to those who need mercy. Lord, we also ask for courage and compassion to do our part as Christ's followers, to serve women who have made the choice for life and their children. May our zeal for the unborn be matched by our zeal for the born. May we take on the responsibility to serve, whether it be through fostering or adoption or support of ministries and networks like A Door of Hope and Foster Well. We pray for the families that are within our own church who have been called to take up the mantle to serve this community in such a special way. May we honor them and support them and go out of our way to, to help and support and partner with them. And so, Lord, we ask that you would come quickly to make all things new. Through the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord, And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, shape us, mold us, transform us because we sat under your teaching today that we might view life, all of life from beginning to end differently because of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 13 is where we are in our Sign of the Times series. Uh, Where were you September 11th, 2001? Where were you? Now, if you're about 30 years of age or older, you can answer that question. You know exactly where you were. You know exactly what you were doing. I was asleep in my college dorm, actually. My friend woke me up at about 9 o'clock that September 11th to the shocking news that an airplane flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Later, of course, we come to find out it was at the hands of radical Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Chaos ensued in the unfolding hours as another plane hit. We hear of another plane in the Pentagon. We hear of a plane down in Pennsylvania. Days, weeks after this brazen attack on American soil, we are shocked. We were stunned. How could this possibly happen here? How could it happen in America? They're so safe. They're so comfortable. We're superpower. How could this happen here? And how did we miss the signs that this was coming? Of course, hindsight is always 2020. But what has certainly become clear in the years and decades since this event, we realized how unprepared America really was. And we realized that they failed, our leaders failed to act upon the many signs that were right in front of them. As Jesus continues teaching about the pending destruction of the temple, about the sign of the end of the age, he has a clear goal. He wants to make sure he prepares his followers both then and now to be prepared for the future, to be prepared for what is to come. And we know this because all throughout this Olivet Discourse in, Matthew, in, excuse me, in Mark 13, Jesus is rep- repeating a phrase over and over and over again, the Greek word blepo, which we translate as watch out or be on your guard or be discerning. It's the same word all throughout. Watch out. I'm preparing you for what is to come, what to be looking for. In verses 1 to 8 in Mark 13, 
he's warning them, he's telling them, watch out for the false signs of the end. Don't get distracted by wars and rumors of war, natural disasters and false preachers and, and teachers. Then in verses 9 to 13, he says, watch out for the persecution that's to come your way. Expect it. It's coming. Don't let it throw you off your, your game. You continue on the mission that, that I've given you. I will be there. I will tell you what to say. I will continue the gospel message out to the ends of the world. And now he gets to verses 14 and 23, and now he's telling them, watch out that you don't miss the signs of the time. Don't get caught off guard. And so he's going to prepare them in this section for three things. He tells them three things about the sign of the times. One, what to look for. Two, how to respond. And then thirdly, he's going to close with who is on your side, knowing who is on their side. Now, let me put my cards on the table in front of you, all right? I want you to know that sort of my interpretive uh, decision, the grid that I'm using as I study Mark 13, I believe that everything that Jesus is going to say here has a double dimension to it, a double dimension to it. That is, that there's a historical dimension to it, an event that happened in 30, uh, excuse me, 70 AD in the Temple Mount, which we've already talked about, and there's an eschatological dimension to it. Eschatological just meaning end of days, future end times before Jesus returns for his second coming. Now, you need to understand, not everyone, not every theologian or pastor or church believes that. Some would say everything that Jesus is talking about here in Mark 13 is talking about that 70 AD event. This would be called the preterist view uh, of this section. And then there's others that say everything that Jesus is talking about is talking about future millennial kingdom. That's often called a ultra-millennial kind of view of this teaching. I believe that this is a double dimension. You don't have to believe exactly what I believe in order to be a member here or attend or serve here. Uh, this isn't something we fight about, okay? Um, but this is how I, I see the text that we're going to look at. And what that means is that I believe there is an immediate application for the disciples and the original readers of Mark's gospel. We'll talk more about that. And there's also an application that sort of rolls on throughout the centuries to us today, for us today. All right? Now, here's the interpretive key, I think, to understanding this section, is to look for the pattern. Look for the pattern. Jesus is going to set a template for what we should expect for the future by pointing us to the past. This is, this is, I think, really important to understanding what Jesus is going to say here. Okay, first of all, what did Jesus want them to look for? Verse 14, Mark 13, 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right? Everybody got it? Everyone knows what that means? We're good? All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> no? Some explanation? Okay, let's talk about it. You say, Nate, what in the world? What is an abomination? I know like the abominable snowman. That's probably not what this is about. What is this? Where is it that they're not supposed to stand? What mountains are we fleeing to? Nate, I need some help here. Okay, let's unpack it. Okay, we got some work to do here. Let's look at these phrases and, and understand what he's saying. First of all, the abomination 
that causes desolation. An abomination is something, is an act or something that desecrates the things that God says are sacred. It is something that is set up against and in rebellion to God. Something that um, we might say offends God deeply. That's an abomination. He says, when this happens, it will cause desolation. Desolation just means uh, scattering, uh, uh, an abandonment uh, that is going to take place. So in other words, it's a desecrating act against God that causes a place to become desolate because of it. Make sense? All right, so now our translation doesn't quite get this verse right, at least not the NIV. The NIV says this, this abomination that causes desolation is standing where it does not belong. There's no it in the original Greek. In the original Greek, it's a singular masculine pronoun. Grammar matters. Some of you kids are like, you know, who got, none of this stuff matters in school, you know, that they're teaching me. Grammar matters. It is not an it, it is a he, standing where he does not belong. Okay, gotcha? So it's not a, a, a thing, it's a person. It's a person standing where they do not belong. Now, where are they standing where they should not belong? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to go to two places briefly. Matthew's account of this, as well as Daniel in the Old Testament. When Matthew is recording Jesus' uh, same sermon right here, he adds that he's, he's standing in the holy place. Where's the holy place? Well, it's the temple. That's the holy place where he's standing. Now, this also is picked up in Daniel, and we get to that in a minute. But your Bible probably has, in quotes, do you notice in quotes, the abomination that causes desolation? Do you see that in your Bibles? It should be there, and the original readers and the hearers, the disciples, would have known exactly what that phrase meant because Daniel already used that phrase in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and, and Daniel chapter 12. Three times this exact phrase is being used. So they would have been picking up on this. Oh, wait a second. That's the same phrase that the prophet Daniel used. Now, when Daniel used it, he added a little bit more color. For example, Daniel 11.31. His, what is that? Masculine, singular pronoun. His armed forces will rise up to, here's, our, here's a phrase, desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus is setting up a pattern. He says, hey, remember, remember what Daniel said? This is the same kind of thing to look for. Now, when the time the gospel was written, around 67 AD, this gospel was written, the Jewish people had had at least one pattern of this abomination already. And that is, if you remember some of history, you might remember this name, in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes came through. He was, a, he was a king who came marching through Jerusalem with his army, and he came right into the temple. And in fact, he was so brazen that he went as far as sacrificing a pig on the altar. Now, for Jewish people, that's like a total no-no, especially. Right? And then he set up a statue of Zeus, and he made all the Jewish people bow down and worship this statue. I would say that's pretty abominable, wouldn't you? 
This is the desecration. And what happened? It caused desolation. The people in the temple courts started to scatter everywhere. And so what is he saying? Jesus is saying to the Jewish readers and his disciples, hey, when you see a figure coming that looks a lot like Antiochus Epiphanes, and when he comes and does something very similar that he does to the temple, and the same thing kind of responds, that people desolate from the temple, uh, guess what? It's all about to go down. Be ready when you see this pattern. Now think about how pertinent, think about how relevant this would have been for the readers of Mark's gospel, written somewhere around 67 AD. In just three years, the temple was about to be destroyed. Everything is percolating to this very moment. They would have been looking for it, which is why, did you notice here in in Mark's gospel, do you notice a little addition of a comment where he says, when you see this, when you see him standing where he does not belong, let the reader understand. Jesus didn't say that. That's Mark putting that little in, that little bit in. Hey, readers, it's 67 AD. Do you remember when Jesus talked about this back around 30 AD? Hey, this is coming. Look for it. Pay attention. It's about to all go down, and sure enough, all the signs were there. By 68 AD, The zealots had overtaken the temple court. They kicked out the priests. They began defiling the temple. The general Titus of the Roman army was bearing down on the city of Jerusalem. All the signs were there, just like Jesus said they would be. So let's look at this pattern. Jesus is pointing them to a pattern uh, with Antiochus Epiphany. We can now look back at the pattern that happened with Titus, and we can use it to help piece together what we might expect for the end. And so what should we expect in this pattern? Well, I think it'll involve the same abominable, evil spirit that was in Antiochus, that was in Titus, when they set themselves up in opposition to God. I think we can expect that to come in the future. I think we will see some kind of desecrating act or acts in the holy place. I think we can expect that. I think we should expect to see a scattering of the people after this occurs. This appears to be the pattern, and it's not the only place it shows up. One of the reasons I'm not a a preterist, I don't just see all this in the past, is because in Revelation, it uses this same language. When was Revelation written? 90 AD. So it's already, the destruction of the temple has already happened, and it's still talking about this thing that's about to occur. And so what pattern can we see from Revelation? Well, it talks about the Antichrist being the one who sets up this abomination that causes desolation. The Antichrist. Now, if you've been around, like, Christian culture for a while, the Antichrist is like, we've got all kinds of images that pop into our mind when we think of Antichrist. All kinds of stuff. We've seen movies on it. We've read books about it. We've, you know, heard chatter about so-and-so's the Antichrist. I mean, we use the Antichrist a little bit flippantly around. Oh, that's so-and-so's, the, you know, government, they're the Antichrist. You know, we throw it around, right? So you say, who, who is the Antichrist? And Nate, I have another question. Where is he going to come from? And what's he going to look like? And Nate, I think what you're saying is that you expect there to be another temple in Jerusalem built. Because, by the way, just in case you don't know this, the temple has not been in Jerusalem for almost 2,000 years. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem. So you're saying, is there going to be a third temple built on, in Jerusalem? 
So what do you think about all this? All right, well, man, we do not have enough time to get into all of those questions, but let me just address a couple of them. First of all, who is the Antichrist? I am not so foolish to stand up here and repeat the errors of the last, you know, several thousand years of people calling so-and-so and predicting so-and-so the Antichrist. I mean, Martin Luther called Pope Leo X the Antichrist. Napoleon was called the Antichrist. Certainly, Adolf Hitler was called the Antichrist. JFK was called the Antichrist. Say, JFK, why? Well, because, of course, because he had 666 votes from the Democratic Convention. I mean, <laughs> hello, right? Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. You say, Mikhail Gorbachev? Yeah, I remember he had that mark on his forehead. You know, so clearly, he's the Antichrist. And Bill Gates, you know, the tech Antichrist. And I'm sure QAnon has their own pick of the Antichrist. Well, it got really quiet right there all of a sudden. <laughs> made some people uncomfortable with that one? Okay. Listen, it's a fool's errand to try to predict who this person is or assume that they're living today. We don't know. We don't know. Now, do I believe that there will be a third temple built on the Temple Mount? I do believe that that's going to happen. And if you go to Israel, you will see that there's plenty of room to put a Jewish temple right up there on the Temple Mount without destroying or, or messing up any of the other buildings, the two, the two uh, Islamic uh, uh, temples that are on the Temple Mount right now. Again, you don't have to believe anything I just said in order to be worship here. That's just, uh, this is where, uh, this is where I, I believe that the scriptures lead us. So a lot more that could be said about that. I want to recommend an easy-to-read, kind of fun-to-read book. It's called The Nonprofit's Guide to the End Times by Todd Hampson. He has a whole series of these. They're great for kids and adults alike. Uh, it's on the recommended book list just out this door. You can even, you can see it. You can see it, not take it home with you. You can see it on that little uh, shelf. So you can buy it, a copy for yourself. Now, this is what to look for. Now Jesus is going to tell us a little bit about how to respond. How do we respond? He goes on, verse 14. When all this happens, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not happen, not take place in, in the winter. Because in those days of distress, or the word's tribulation, because in those days of distress, they're unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So how should they respond? In a word, Jesus says, flee. Get out of Dodge. Don't go back and get at your belongings. Get out of there like the house is on fire. Like it's a tinderbox. There is no time for heroes. <laughs> it's time for survival. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus isn't looking for unnecessary martyrs running into trouble. There isn't, there's enough trouble that's going to find you just for living out your faith. He says, survive. Survive. You and your families survive this tribulation. I like how Pastor Alistair Begg puts it. He says this. He wants them to know that there's no reason for them to be fanatical about buildings, namely a temple, or about places, namely Jerusalem. You're not tied to this building, Jesus says. You're not tied to this place. You're tied to the gospel. 
Therefore, endure to the end for the sake of the gospel. And I think he's right. Uh, Historian Eusebius writes about the early church, and he records uh, that in AD 67 and 8 and 9, with the revolt of the Jews and with the, the, the sacking of Jerusalem, that the believers in Jerusalem did make a run for it. They did exactly what Jesus told them, and they fled to the mountains of Pella. And because of that, they survived. And because of that, the gospel continued to reach generations. Jesus also said in this text how dreadful it will be. Jesus said he called it a time of tribulation unequaled for Israel. And indeed, this is exactly what it was. Sadly, many did not see the, time, the sign of the times. Many of them just stayed there like they're you know, looking into the eye of a Category 5 hurricane. They just stuck around and didn't do anything and because of that suffered uh, their fate. Josephus, the Jewish historian in his book, The War of the Jews, describes how 97,000 people in this event were taken captive. 1.1 million perished by slow starvation or the sword. Listen to his own words, Josephus, describing this event. Josephus wrote just within 50 years of this event. It devoured the people by whole households and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children and young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine, and they fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night had seized upon the city, end quote. Now, as awful and tragic and horrible as this time was, Jesus says, this just sets up the pattern. And we know it's just the pattern for a future time, partly because of his words here. He says, this day of distress in this next dimension of time will be the worst that the world has ever seen and never to be equaled again. So, so whatever this event is, it will be the worst that's ever happened. So these days, indeed, will be stressful. So what is the pattern? We don't have time to go all the way there, but you can read about what happens, what will happen in the future. Daniel's, Daniel chapter 9 through 12, uh, Revelation 6 through, through 9, uh, talks about this great tribulation. By the way, I believe it will be a seven-year period on earth when this is happening. It'll be far worse destruction, far worse famine, far worse death than even this one, and that the believers living in that day will be instructed to do the very same thing. Flee to the mountains, go to the rocks and the caves, because this will be a terrible, horrible, very bad, no good day, right? Now, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope, and this is really where I want to focus the rest of our time today. Jesus also wants to know who's on their side. And this is the critical part of all this. Verse 20. If the Lord, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened those days. Now again, the immediate context of this, the historical dimension of this, Jesus is talking about Christians who survive this great tribulation of 70 A.D., 
He wants them to know it is God who intervenes. It is God who kept you alive. He is your rescuer. He preserved your life. Now, again, look for the pattern. What can we expect for the next time? Someday in the future, we can expect this in this great time of tribulation that God will intervene to save his people. When that happens, at what point in this great tribulation, I don't know, but I can expect that God will protect and save a remnant. God will protect his people. I believe Jesus' words here are also echoed in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, when Daniel, the prophet, says, at that time, he's talking about this final eschatological moment in the future, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. Who does that sound like? Jesus. And at that time, your people, who are your people? Everyone whose name is found written in the book. Revelation picks up on the same phrase. He says, this is the book of life. This is the book of life. All those whose names are written in the book of life will be delivered. So to summarize, Jesus is preparing his disciples both then and today to look for the pattern, desecration of God's holy place by an anti-God world leader. Look for the pattern of the scattering and the fleeing of God's people from that holy place. Look for the pattern of God's rescue from a, for a remnant of believers during that time of destruction. Now, this isn't the most encouraging and uplifting safe for the whole family message I've ever given as your pastor. We can agree on that. Um, you know, but the Bible isn't just full of puppies and rainbows. You understand, the Bible talks about like real life. It talks about life in pain and suffering and living in a broken world. It talks about destruction and death. And sometimes it's just good to be reminded of that, to sort of wake up to reality, because this world can so lull us to sleep. This world, it can get us so focused right now on our comfort and how many followers on Instagram we have and how many people, you know, liked our posts and going on that next great vacation and, you know, chilling out and chillaxing and living our best life. We can get so focused on that stuff that we forget that stuff is going to go down. There's suffering in this world. And in the last couple of years, living in a you know, pandemic world don't teach you that. I don't know what will. The Bible faces reality of living in a broken world, and it prepares us for how to live in a world full of suffering and pain and to face it with resilience and to face it with hope because there's hope here if we're looking for it. There is hope in this text. See, it would be easy to look at all this horror, to look at all this chaos and calamity, to look at all this pointless suffering and say, man, where's God? It seems like God's asleep. God's aloof. Or maybe worse, God can't do anything about it. It looks like evil's winning. And if that were true, if we can't count on God, if everything's kind of out of control, then man, we should, there's no reason to ever get out of your bed in the morning. Because how in the world can we live in the world we live in and face that reality, if that's true? We, we should be so filled with terror. 
We should be so filled with anxiety and utter hopelessness about any and all distress that comes our way. Because what's to stop it? If there's nothing after this, we're hopeless. Whether it's from the pending calamity of an existential threat to humanity, or it's just your own personal, you know, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. But Jesus here interjects to show that at the center of all the pain and all the anxiety and all the chaos and confusion, Jesus is there. God is intervening. His eye is on his people, on what the Bible calls the elect, the chosen. Who is that? The ones whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is that? Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. That's who it is. His name is written in that book. God is for his people. And so here's a question I want you to land on. How is it that we can be prepared for times of calamity, whether it's trials, everyday trials of this life, or facing our own morality, or, uh, or mortality rather, or at the end of time when everything comes to a culmination, when everything seems lost and you want to give up? The only way to be prepared is by answering the question of who is on your side? Who is on your side? Do you know who's on your side? I love what Paul says in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, you say it, who can be against us? Wow. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you remember uh, in Lord of the Rings, uh, the two towers, do you remember that final battle scene, the battle of, of Hornburg, when, man, every, everything is coming to a culmination, a huge battle, and it doesn't look like the good guys are winning. I mean, it is bloody, it is gruesome, it is chaotic. The helm looks like it's about to be lost. And everyone looks dejected. The music in the movie is just, is just somber. Everything looks bad. When all seems to be lost, on the brink of defeat, what happens? Gandalf, the white, shows up riding his white stallion, Shadowfax. And he's coming with a band of army, uh, an army ready to take charge. And all the music changes. And when all the good guys look up and they see him, their expressions change. They're encouraged. They're filled with hope. And Gandalf leads the charge, and he conquers and defeats the evil ones who have to flee. You ever wonder where Tolkien got that? He got it from Jesus. He got it from the Bible. He got it from the texts like this one that we're studying. This is sort of a spoiler alert for next week, but guess what? Jesus wins. He comes riding on the clouds, clouds with a host of angel armies with him. Amen. And so when you're facing your pain, when you're facing your darkness, when you're facing your trials, who is on your side? When you're facing down your own mortality, who is on your side? Is Jesus on your side? When you're facing an existential threat of human existence, who is on your side? Is Jesus on your side? I love that anthem of the Christian life that Paul continues in Romans 8 to say, verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are what? More than conquerors. Say that with me. More than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, you might feel like today that you've got no protection. You feel like you got no money. Maybe you're out of a job. Maybe your relationships are all bent out of whack. Maybe you're a low man on the totem pole. Maybe you've been battling all kinds of problems and addictions and anxieties. Maybe you look at your life and you've got disease and it looks like you're not as strong as you once were and you can see your end coming. You f- Maybe right now you feel like you've got nothing, but if you have Jesus, you have everything. You have everything. Do you know the opposite is also true? You, 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 you could be sitting on a mound of money You could have a great job and a great family. Your life could look like one, you know, you you, you see in the movies. You could be traveling to all kinds of awesome places. You know, you could be killing it uh, in fitness. You know, your Peloton numbers, I mean, you're just crushing it, right? You're, You're healthy, as healthy as you've ever been, but you don't have Jesus? You got nothing. You got no protection in this world. When that trap door called death hits and you fall out the bottom, there's no safety net holding you secure. And I don't, I say that, hear my heart on it, I say that out of deep love. And I say that out of passion for you to know Jesus and know what's going to happen to you. And I say it because of the sanctity of human life. Your life is sacred and it's a terrible thing to lose. I don't want you to lose that life. Would you, let's just bow your head. Would you bow your head with me? As we close our time here together. I want you to think about this. I want you to take account of this because for some of us, man, we've just been, our head has been just so, just looking down. We've been navel gazing. We've been staring at our phone too long and we've forgotten that this life This is a short life. We are here and we are gone. And we don't know when the next horrible thing could happen. We really don't. And the enemy doesn't ever want us to think about that. And maybe you're here today. You say, man, I got a great life. But but I don't know if Jesus is on my side. Nate, what do I need to do? I I need to go to church more? Do I need to pray more? Do I need to give more money? Do, what, what do I need to do to make sure Jesus is on my side? How can I earn his favor and appease him so that he's on my side? Oh, friend, here's the great news. It doesn't come through any of that. It doesn't come through working harder, trying to be better, trying to look better to impress him. It doesn't come as we, we just heard and sang in the song. It doesn't come from trophies. It comes through the person, Jesus Christ, who lived a life perfect that we could never live, who died a death in our place on the cross to pay for our sin. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. He paid it all, and he rose from the dead to conquer the grave. And he's coming back 
He will come back and take us to be where he is forever and ever and ever in the place where time has no meaning. It's not through anything you can do. It's through what Jesus has done. And so if you want to make sure that Jesus is on your side, you can simply pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I recognize that there will be an end to my life. And I want to make sure that when that end comes, that you are on my side. And I believe that you, were, you lived a life that was perfect, that you died a death in my place to secure my eternity and fight my battles forever and ever. I invite you into my life. Forgive my sin. And help me to live a life that pleases you. And if you prayed that prayer, you can know that you know that you know. If you believe it, that he is on your side. To fight your battles today, but to fight that great battle that comes in the end. And if that's you today, I want to encourage you to write down on your connection card. Write down just a simple prayer to him. Or to say, just write on your connection card, Today, I trusted Jesus to be on my side so we can follow up with you, so we can pray with you and encourage you and show you what it means to live with Jesus. Lord, for all of us today, may we be encouraged by this teaching that you are on our side. You stand with us in our pain and you will stand with us in the end. In Jesus' name.